Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10 is where we're going to be today, uh, spending our time traveling through the book of Romans uh, verse by verse. It's kind of who we are. It's part of the DNA of our church here at Redemption Calvary. We just go through books of the Bible. Um, every once in a while, we'll do something different, like a, a, some sort of series. It's pretty rare. I mean, like, like I said, we did the Ten Commandments earlier this year, but that's fairly uncommon for us. Typically, we just travel through books of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, you can raise your hand. We'll get one to you, or there are also some on the tables as you come in. Or if you're online, you can uh, open up uh, your YouVersion Bible app or any of us here uh, on your smartphone or tablet and follow along there. There's also a link in the notes on Facebook and YouTube for that YouVersion uh, uh, app if you don't have the app on your smartphone or tablet. Uh, later on this year, Colorado is going to experience the grace and mercy of God like never before. In-N-Out Burger is going to be opening. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's set to be opening in multiple spots, multiple locations across the state. Now, others may try to lay false claim to be the king of burgers, but everybody knows that In-N-Out is absolutely the best, and I can prove it to you because nobody waits in line for a Whataburger, uh, but everyone waits in line for an In-N-Out burger. You know, uh, they, they, you know, once you taste the glory of In-N-Out, you know that you have tasted something totally different. Places like Freddy's even try to make their own duplicate, uh, you know, counterfeit of what uh, In-N-Out is, but it pales in comparison because there's truly only one In-N-Out burger. And I use that as a really facetious kind of silly introduction today because so too, if you want freedom from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and in the future in heaven from the presence of sin, there's really only one way to get it. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Being a good person isn't enough. Giving money isn't enough. Uh, doing right things isn't enough. Your good outweighing your bad isn't enough. Being really true to your religious upbringing isn't enough. Uh, hoping that one day God really isn't there isn't enough. There's only one way. It's through grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus alone. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in uh, Romans chapter 10. Here's our big idea that this, God has the same solution for us all because we all have the same problem. That, that God has one solution for humanity. I don't care where you're from. I don't care where you grew up. I don't care what language you speak. God has one solution for all of humanity because we all have the same problem. So we're going to read through Romans chapter 10 together today. We're going to take the entire chapter. It's 21 verses, so it's not quite as long as the other chapters. But we're going to read through all of it. It's going to take a minute, uh, and then we'll go back through and break it down. All right, so Romans chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God uh, for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the, the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith 
which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 14, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how, they, how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, they have not heard, or excuse me, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But, mo but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that as we open it, that you have clearly conveyed your gospel to us, that you give to us the truth and you give to us the measure of faith that we need. And I pray that, Lord, today we would place our faith in you, that we would place our hope in you. God, I pray that those who have never placed their faith in you, Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray that those of us who have at one time in our past placed our faith in you, that our faith would grow today. Because just like we read, faith comes by hearing your word. And as we open your word, as we study it, we pray that you would impart to us the faith that we need, the growth and maturity and development that you do supernaturally by your grace, by your great power. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 21 in four parts, four parts of this uh, verse, uh, chapter today. It is going to be verses 1 through 7, the righteousness of self, verses 8 through 13, the righteousness of God, verses 14 through 17, the preacher's responsibility, and then verses 18 through 21, the hearer's responsibility. So that's how we'll break down the chapter today. Now, just as a kind of way of reminder to get us up to speed, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are like this weird pause in the middle of Romans where the focus shifts from the idea of explaining the gospel, the need for the gospel in the first eight chapters, and then starting in chapter 12, it's the results of the gospel. In 9, 10, and 11, the focus is the nation of Israel. And we looked at last week in Romans chapter 9, looking at the past dealings of God with Israel, that God has dealt with Israel in the past plan of God. And today, as we look at chapter 10, what we're seeing is, what we're, what we're experiencing in chapter 10 is the present rejection of God by Israel. That's the idea of Romans chapter 10. Now, Romans chapter 9 and 10 work together to display two things that we typically look at as opposed, and yet they are simultaneously true. When you look at Romans 9, it's absolutely abundantly clear that the sovereignty of God is on display. God has a plan. Nobody can thwart that plan. Nobody can uh, remove that plan. Nobody can take the plan of God away. That God has a plan and he's going to execute his plan. That's Romans 9. Then Romans 10 comes in and it's all about human responsibility. 
That, that it's, it's not about the plan of God. No, now it's uh, more about the responsibility of people. Now, this drives us crazy intellectually because we look for the answer. Which one is it? I mean, is God, is God sovereign or are people responsible? And really, the answer is yes. That, that's the answer. The answer is yes. People who try to, you know, figure this out and, and divide over all of this, really, they, uh, they are pursuing an intellectual thing that is, is not possible to really grasp with our finite minds. Here's our Charles Spurgeon, the, who's called the Prince of Preachers. Here's how he describes it in one of his sermons. He says, I was once asked to reconcile these two uh, statements, and I answered, no, I never reconcile friends. These two passages never fell out. They are perfectly Agreed. It is folly to imagine a difference and then set about removing it. You see, in our minds, they're contrary to one another, but biblically, they're simultaneously true. They're actually complementary. They both work together simultaneously. God is absolutely in control, and you are absolutely responsible. Those are both true at the same time. You don't have to understand it fully, but you do have to believe it because that's the way scripture works, all right? So let's look at this first section together today, the righteousness of self in verses one through seven. Go back to verse one, it says this, but brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. You see, Paul is deeply concerned for Israel. We saw chapter nine open this way, and now chapter 10 again opens this way with the salvation of the nation of Israel. It's this deep concern that weighs upon the heart and the mind of uh, of Paul. And the really, really the, the truth of the matter is that they have all of these advantages of why they should see Jesus as the Christ, why they should put their faith in him. And we saw that in Romans 9 verses 4 and 5. They have eight different advantages that should bring them to faith. And yet the vast majority of Israel is not saved at this time that Paul reads this. And the same thing is true today that the vast majority of Israel is not saying uh, that they are not saved. They have rejected their Messiah. And this concern, what does it do? Look there at verse one. My prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. His concern drives him to prayer. I, I would ask you, do you pray? Are, are, you, are you concerned enough to pray? David Guzik says it like this. Oftentimes, it's not a problem of not enough prayer. The problem is not enough care. Many times we should just cry out to God and say, Lord, make me care more. The reason we don't pray is because we honestly don't care. Here, here's another way to say it. You only pray about what you care about. If, you, if you're not praying about it, then I would argue with you, you really don't care about it. You might say you care about it. You might tell people you care about it. But if you're not praying about it, if it's not on your mind to bring before God, then it's not truly a care that you have. And so Paul is driven to prayer. He's constantly praying that Israel would be saved. And what's the issue? Well, the issue is salvation. Look at verse two. It says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. The issue is, is salvation and Israel sees no need to be saved. They, they would look at the Gentiles and say they need to be saved, but we're, we're by default saved because we're Jewish. In fact, the rabbis of this day would commonly teach that Abraham stands at the gates of hell and that he's watching people march into hell and he would look for Jewish people and he would stop them and say, hey, whoa, 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 you're one of my people. You don't belong in this line. Somehow you got in the wrong line. Get in the line to heaven. And that just by virtue of being Jewish, that's all they needed to do. And then they were saved. They were bound for heaven. 
The, the Gentiles, the, the, the filthy people, everybody else needs to be saved, not the Jewish people. And they thought because they had sincerity and devotion, and secondly, because they, their good would outweigh their bad, that they had no need for this salvation. You see, verse uh, two says that they have a zeal for God. You see that? This idea of zeal is excitement and fervor and even the idea of fierceness. What this is saying is that being louder and crazier and more extreme doesn't necessarily make you right. You can, you can be screaming and loud about all the wrong things. Turn on the news. You'll see a bunch of people doing that right now. They're going crazy, burning down our cities, looting and rioting, and they're loud and they're very boisterous about it, but that doesn't make them right, right? Just because you're loud, it doesn't make you right. The, the reality is that zeal departed from knowledge uh, can actually make you wrong. Uh, think about it like this. On September 11th, 2001, 19 Muslim terrorists hijacked four planes and murdered nearly 3,000 people with those planes, and they thought they were serving God. That's what they thought they were doing. They believed wholeheartedly. I, I don't doubt their zeal for one second. How many of us would be willing to do something so crazy as that? I, I think we would all say, this is where I check out. I'm not going to go that far. Their zeal surpasses many of ours by far, and yet their zeal is without knowledge. They're, they're zealous for the wrong things. They're passionate about the wrong things. Just being passionate is not enough to gain salvation. Not only that, but look at uh, verse 3. The second idea, not only is it that uh, their sincerity and devotion is what they leaned into, but they thought that their good would outweigh their bad. Look at verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here's the thought. They believed that the law was there for them to prove how good they were. I know the law, I read the law, I keep the law, therefore look at how good I am. They were ignorant, not of the law, but they were ignorant of the purpose of the law. This is what their ignorance was. They, they didn't understand what the, the point of the law was. The point of the law was to reveal God's righteousness, not for you to establish your own righteousness. That was never the point of the law. And so in verses five through seven, oh, excuse me, verse four, uh, we have this, this uh, target that it's not about my good while weighing my bad, but it's actually belief in Jesus. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, belief in Jesus is submission to the righteousness of God. You see that at the end of verse four or verse three, excuse me, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God submitting to the righteousness of God, submitting to God is really the issue of salvation. You can know all the right things. You can even say that you believe all the right things. You can go through the motions and do all the right things and yet fail in being submitted to God. Submission to God is the whole issue. It's the crux of the matter in terms of coming into a place of salvation, of actually being saved. And that, how do we gain this? Well, it's because Jesus is the end of the law. How is Jesus the end of the law? Not that he abolished the law, but that through Jesus, belief in Jesus, that is submission to God, and it ends our attempt to keep the law in an act of self-righteousness. Look how good I am. Look at the stuff that I do. I don't, I don't do those bad things. I don't, those filthy people over there, I don't do what they do. I, I'm not participating in that. Look at all the good stuff that I do. Here's all the ways that I've earned a right place with God, and now God owes me the gift of heaven. And so in this, 
uh, Paul moves into verses 5 through 7 where he quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy to explain that there are only two biblical ways of attaining righteousness. That this is always the way that it's been, even in the Old Testament. This is not a New Testament only teaching. It's an Old Testament teaching as well. That there, is, there are two ways of attaining righteousness. Number one, through the law. And that's what we see there in uh, verse, verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. It says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is, notice, of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So this first way of attaining righteousness is of the law. Verse 5. It's very simple. Perfectly keep the entire law for all of your life, and you will be able to earn your own righteousness. Anybody in that boat? Anybody been perfect their whole life? No. Right? We, no one's been able to do such a thing because even before we knew there was a law, we failed at even keeping it. Anybody who has kids know that. The, the rebellious little child that, that just looks in your face and says, no, I'm not going to do it. I remember one time with my oldest, she's 16 now, but when she was about, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four years old, um, I told her, I said, oh, Haley, you're, 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 you're going to uh, you're gonna have to get a spanking for that. And she looked at me and she said, well, I'm not going to cry. It's just defiance. I will stand up to you. I don't care if you're four times my size. I'm bigger than you in my own mind. You know, there's just this defiance and rebellion in the heart of a child. And so as, as we see this happening, we have failed at keeping the law even before we even knew one. And so, that, so that, that way is out. Keeping the law to get good with God is out. And that's important for you to grasp not just in terms of salvation, but as the basis of your relationship with God. How often do we come to God on the terms of, I did all the good things, God. I, I read my Bible every day this week, God. I, I, even, I gave some money to this charitable organization. I was nice. I let that person cut me off in traffic, and I didn't even say mean things. I, Lord, look at all the good that I did this week. You, you should receive me. You should accept me even more so. When we approach God that way, it's based on our works. It's based on the law. It's a faulty belief system in how God works. That's not how God works. If that's, if that's what you're relying on, if you think that God's going, you're going to deserve God's presence, then the truth of the matter is that you are setting yourself up for failure. You will never be able to earn your own righteousness. But six and seven talk to us about a different way, the second way that you can have righteousness. Look at verse six. But the righteousness, notice, of faith. So here's the second part. There's righteousness of the law, and then there's righteousness of faith. And what does it say? And then he quotes a couple of Old Testament passages of Scripture. It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that's to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This is, this is basically telling us it's equally as simple as the first way. The first way of the law is, is very simple. Keep the whole law for your whole life. And the way of faith is equally as simple. There, are, there is no quest of great heights or great depths to discover or gain the mysteries of righteousness. We tend to think, Lord, what's the religious thing I've got to do? What's the quest that I've got to go on? What's the, the mountain that I've got to climb? And, and I'll do that, and then, and then somehow I'll gain this kind of relationship with you. No, the whole point is it's faith alone in Jesus alone because of his grace alone. That's what gets us to the point of salvation. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, if you will. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, I want to show you in Galatians 3 how uh, this is described in a chunk of scripture here. I just want to basically read it 
for you, and uh, I think it's fairly self-explanatory. I'll make a couple of comments, but we won't spend a lot of time here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. It says this, what purpose then does the law serve? Right, so there's a, there's a good question. If the law wasn't meant to, for me to get my righteousness, to climb the mountain, to get to God, then what's the point? What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through the angels uh, by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator doesn't mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under, excuse me, confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. Not that we might be justified, excuse me, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under that tutor. You see, the law of God was never a way to make people good. It's design, just like the law, the legal system that we have today. You can't legislate morality, can you? You just can't do it. There's no such thing as a law that's going to make people good. All that laws do is restrain the evil. That's all. They just hold back the evil that is built within humanity. Really what this is saying is that the law doesn't give you a way to climb higher and get into heaven or dig deeper and get down into it. And it gets you, what the law does is it gets you to the end of you. Because at that point, when you're at the end of you, that's when you'll reach out for Jesus. That's when you'll recognize, I have no power on my own to make myself better. I need God to do this in me by a supernatural miraculous power. Go back to Romans chapter 10 if you will, as we continue on. Not only is it the righteousness of self, but we see in the second piece, in 8 through 13, the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 8, says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in him from your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, the natural question then comes. If there's not a quest to go on, if there's not a mountain to climb, or something to dig deep down into, then the natural question comes, how does this righteousness of faith actually work? And what this section does is it focuses on the anatomy of salvation, the anatomy of faith. What does faith actually really look like. And the righteousness of faith in verse 6 is how we gain the righteousness of God in verse 3. That the righteousness of faith gives us access to the righteousness of God. That it's not by our stuff, by our ability, by our capacity, but it's by God and by His ability. And so uh, God, what He does through faith is He actually imputes, that's the Bible word, or He gives. He actually gives you His righteousness. It's not that he gives you the ability to work right. It's not like Jesus says, hey, I did it. So now here, you, you have to figure out how to do it. No, he actually gives you his own perfection. 
He, he takes from you all of your failure, all your fault, all of your sin. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about that, that great exchange that he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You literally are transformed into becoming the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. God gives his own perfection to imperfect people. Now, verse 8, what it is, it's a continuation of the Deuteronomy quote that we saw in verses uh, 6 and 7. It's a continuation, the, ne the very next verse. It's, it's not about going on a noble quest, but it's about what's in your heart and what's in your mouth. That God's way, even in the law, in the Old Testament law, has always been the way of faith. It's always been the way of faith. Here's how David Guzik says it. Friends, do you see what the grace of God does? Do you see what faith does? It actually, it, it takes it totally out of the realm of earning and deserving and puts it within the realm of believing and receiving. You, you can't earn and do anything to gain more access or favor with God. There's not a single thing you can do to make God love you more. When you enter into believing and receiving, then not only does he pour out all of his love on you, but he also pours out all of his power upon you to be what you wish you were. That's the amazing power of God. In verses 9 and 10, Paul goes on this commentary or this explanation of what we just looked at in Deuteronomy 30 uh, with verses 7 through 8. You see, these two parts work together to produce saving faith. But notice he points them out in reverse chronology. Look at verse 9. He says, For if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. So he, he takes them in, in chronological order, but backwards. He says, if you confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. So this confession with your mouth is an outward, physical manifestation. That it's something that comes out of you. The result uh, of what's inside, but it's, it's something that comes out. That there's a physical manifestation that must take place. You see, an external uh, expression is important, but, but it's not everything. Because external expressions that are disconnected from internal conviction is merely religious obligation. Let, let me say that again. External expression disconnected from internal conviction is actually just a religious obligation. How many people do you know that go through the motions outside? Maybe even you do that from time to time. You just, you just kind of, maybe, maybe even as, as Vince is leading us in worship and he's singing, you're, you're singing the words, you got the melodies right, you can do all the harmonies, but your mind is disconnected from what the words mean and you're just kind of going through the outward religious motion of singing because that's kind of what you do at church. It's very easy for us to slip into that. I, I do this stuff because that's what's right. I, I do these things because that's what good people are supposed to do. But not only is it an external thing with your mouth, but we continue on in verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth that the, uh, that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Belief in your heart is this second part that works together. You see, this is an inward personal conviction. It's not just an outward physical manifestation, but it's also an inward personal conviction, something that is within you. But so too, just like an outward expression only isn't enough, so too an inward uh, uh, conviction only is not enough. Inward, internal conviction, disconnected from external expression, is merely emotional manipulation. It's just, it's just a thing inside you that can make you feel better. You ever do that? You sort of 
just end up feeling better because maybe you, maybe you sort of confessed your sin to God, but you didn't do anything to try to make it right with that other person. And so emotionally, you sort of feel better, but you didn't actually do anything to make it right. And so you feel better inside, but you didn't do anything outside. These two have to work together. That there's something that takes place inside you and the result of what's inside you has to come out of you physically, externally. If there's nothing on the outside, then what's on the inside really doesn't matter. If it's just on the outside and there's nothing on the inside, then what's on the outside really doesn't matter. Even though it looks really nice and, oh, you're such a good person or whatever, that, that those things have got to work together. General religious goodness cannot save you and general belief in God cannot save you that it has to be both working together. And that's what he says in verse 10. For with the heart, one believes in the righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. This is how it happens. Your heart believes and your mouth proves it. What's inside is revealed on the outside. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says this. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, this has been God's plan throughout the entire Old Testament, this idea of faith. Yes, there's a law in the Old Testament and there's these things that have to be done, but even those things had to be done based upon an internal belief. It wasn't just motions for people to go through. It's always been God's plan throughout the entire Old Testament. It's not just a Jewish plan. It includes all people in all places. Notice the word whoever. It's repeated there twice in, the, in these three verses. And also all is repeated twice in these three verses. God makes an open invitation. He makes an open invitation to anybody who would be willing to come. If you're willing to come, the invitation is open to you. And yet, at the same time, it's not just an open invitation to anybody, but the same way for the Jew is also the way of the Gentile. That there's not like a, a, a Jewish church and then a Gentile church. It's not a, a, a church for the people of Israel and then a church for everybody else in the planet. No, God says, I'm going to make one church. I'm going to bring them together under this same banner of faith. And yet, there's our part in taking responsibility for this, is there not? It's not just God extending this. If, you, if you'll come, it's yours. You've actually got to do something with this. It's, it's like if I was to say that I wanted to give to you my iPad. I said, hey, you know what? I, I just, I feel like the Lord is leading me to say, you need an iPad. And so here, I want to give you my, my iPad. And if I hand it out to you and I extend it to you and I'm standing here holding it out to you and you're like, man, I've, I've actually wanted an iPad. I, I think they're pretty cool. And I really want to play some uh, emoji blitz or something. And I've just been really looking for a bigger screen. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm handing it out to you. I can hand it out to you all day long. And it's not yours until you do something. You've actually got to take it. I can say it's yours. I can declare it's yours. I can, I can try to tell you that it's yours. I can try to leave it on your doorstep and, and leave it right there, but you've actually got to pick it up and claim it as yours. That's your part in this part of faith. That, that, that God, yes, he is sovereign. Yes, God chooses. Yes, God is over all and he's the one who has his way. And yet, and yet, you've got to actually take hold of what the Lord is offering you by faith. Thirdly, we see not only the righteousness of self and the righteousness of God, but in verses 14 through 17, the preacher's responsibility. There's a responsibility to the preacher here in uh, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says this, How then 
Shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how, how the, shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they, be, they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. God uses two things to spread his gospel. There are two things that God uses to spread his gospel. Number one is the message. There's a message that has to be proclaimed. The word gospel, maybe you don't know that word or you're, you're not necessarily familiar with it, you've heard it, uh, but the word gospel literally just means good news. That, that's all it means. And so, well, the good news, there's gotta be some news to deliver. There's gotta be a message that's gotta be delivered. And the message that's gotta be delivered is that Jesus, who is God, stepped into human history in order to take your sin and go to the cross to bleed and die and sacrifice himself so that he might pay the penalty for your sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And upon that resurrection, he proved that he's God. He proves that he has power over sin and death. And that by believing in this truth, it changes everything. That's the gospel message. Without that, without those components, there's no gospel message. Just general belief in Jesus is not enough. The Mormons have a Jesus. He's not the real one. The Muslims have a Jesus. He's not the real one. Jehovah Witnesses have a Jesus. He's not the real one. You've got to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And that, that stuff that we just talked about, of those, those details are what describe the Jesus of the Bible. Without those things, there's no such thing as salvation. It's just a general belief in a guy named Jesus who didn't exist. Because the Mormon Jesus doesn't exist, the Muslim Jesus doesn't exist, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus doesn't exist, only the Jesus of the Bible exists. And they don't preach that Jesus. That's the message. But there's not only a message, there's two components. There's a message that's got to be preached, that's got to be proclaimed, but there's also a messenger that's got to deliver the message. Well, what's a message without a messenger? Nobody hears it. Nobody knows. Nobody understands it. Nobody, nobody is able to, to uh, have it impact them and come upon their lives because nobody's saying it. There's got to be a messenger that is there as well. God could have chosen any way to deliver his message. He could have said that he's going to just do it by divine impartation. He's just going to beam the message of the gospel into your brain. You know, and then there it is. I, oh, I hear this realization in my mind. I just, I just had God speak to me in my mind. That God could do that. He could use angels and you know, all sorts of supernatural kinds of things uh, to do that. He could use circumstances and you know, just things work out. And you're like, oh, I understand the gospel now. Or even creation could take place and he could use that. And yet, even though God does sometimes use all of those things, God's chosen method of communication is people. That's what he's decided to use. I don't know why, it's, you know, it's, to me it's, it's a, a really, uh, not the best kind of a, 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 a tool to use because we're fallible, we're flawed, we get stuff wrong, we don't do it right all the time, sometimes we forget stuff, sometimes our, you know, we, our attitude is bad or wrong. He, I mean, there's a lot more effective ways of bringing his gospel message than using us, and yet that's what he's chosen. He's graciously chosen to use people. People are his preachers. If you have the message then you are the messenger. When it says the preacher, it's very easy for you to say, you know, oh, that, that's, that's me. That's the guy standing up front uh, yelling and, and getting sweaty and stuff. You know, that's, that's what uh, the preacher is. That, that's the role that I have. And yes, that's a role I have and I'm grateful to do it and, and thankful that God would allow me to serve you in this way. But if you have the message, if you've believed in Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, this means that you are the preacher 
as well. It's not someone who has a title or someone who has a seminary degree. He's given you access and he's given you influence with people who I never will. No missionary ever will. But you have access to people. You have influence with people who need to hear the gospel message and you have it. You have the gospel message. It's up to you to deliver it. You see, God is the one who sends his preacher with his message to those who have not, are not yet his people so they will call on him in faith and be saved. So it's important, not only that the message is preached, but that the messenger is established. Here's how Ian e. Bounds in his book, Power Through Prayer, says it. He says, the character as well as the fortunes of the gospel are committed to the preacher. He either makes or, and if you're a woman, then just say she, either makes or mars the message from God to man. The preacher is the golden pipe through which the divine oil flows. The pipe must not only be golden, but open and flawless. This way, the oil will have a full, unhindered, unwasted flow. So here's the question I want to ask. Does your life promote or obstruct the gospel message? Would people say, I understand your words, but I can't hear them because your life's too loud? That's, that's a, a question I think we have to wrestle with. Does my life line up with what I'm saying? You see, you don't take money advice from broke people. You don't take fitness advice from the flabby. And you don't take parenting advice from those who have uh, rebellious kids, do you? If you do, you're doing it wrong, right? You pick people who have what you wish you had and you take advice from them. So too, if you live like hell, no one's gonna take your advice about heaven. It's a pretty direct way to say it, right? But we cannot disconnect what we do from what we believe and think we're honoring God. Our doing has gotta flow out of our believing otherwise we make ourselves completely irrelevant. Why would people listen to a message about some sort of religious nonsense that's disconnected from God? Verses 16 through 17 says this, verse 16, but... They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who will believe, who has believed our report? You see, access to the gospel is the same to all, but proximity to the gospel is not the same for all. Israel was much, much closer. We read that last week in, in verses four and five of chapter nine, that they were much closer. They had all of these, these ways of getting closer to the gospel, and yet they chose to reject it. That's what Isaiah says. What a tragic thing. I think it's a tragic thing for us in America as well. We have so much access to the gospel. There are so many Bibles. You have free Bible apps. You, I mean, you can listen to preaching uh, like we were doing here or online. And there's just so much access to the gospel. And yet, people still willfully choose to reject it. And it's a tragic, tragic thing. But notice verse 17, he says this. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of God is necessary for salvation. How do I get the message of the gospel? I didn't just make it up. I didn't just go to a, you know, some, some seminary and get a degree and they told me, here's what the parts of the gospel are. You know how I got the gospel? I got it out of the Bible. That, I got it out of God's word. God's word says exactly what the gospel message is. I don't have to guess at it. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to go through some religious hoops or whatever. The Bible clearly, directly defines what the message is. You see, preaching is not only for those who need to be saved, but it's for anyone who needs to grow in faith. Do you see that there in verse 17? It says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you need more faith? 
Do you need to develop in faith? Do you need maturity in faith? Do you need to overcome that sin or take that step of courageous faith in your life? Do you need God to come through in some supernatural way? God's word is absolutely central to that, which is why here at Redemption, we give all of our effort, all of our time to proclaiming God's word. We're going to open the scriptures. We're going to read the scriptures. We're going to explain the scriptures because faith doesn't come by you hearing five points about how to be a better you, or here's my tips on some other stuff that you need in your life that doesn't produce faith, which is why Christianity in our culture today is weak and feeble and people are malnourished spiritually because that's the kind of preaching they're getting. They're getting nonsense. No one needs your opinions about all this stuff that you think is important. Who freaking cares? It's not about what, what, what makes that opinion better than my opinion. What makes my opinion better than your opinion? Who cares? Just because I can string it together and sound smart and say, oh, that's so wise. All that means is that you read a book and stole it from some other guy. Like, ridiculous. We need to open the scriptures. And what, is, what does the word of God actually say? That's where nourishment comes from. That's where life comes from. That's where healthy, mature believers come from. Come from the word of God being clearly preached. So do you need faith? Well, it's going to come from the word of God. You see, it's necessary for genuine faith. And many pulpits today are filled with these self-promoting motivational speakers that their whole point is gathering crowds. That's what they want. They just want a bigger crowd. That's what they care about. They don't care about faithfully delivering the word. They care about gathering a large crowd. They treat fading, excuse me, they trade feeding God's sheep in favor of entertaining goats. That's what's happening across our country. That's why the chaos we see in our country, that's why the sin is rampant in, in our country, because there is no gospel there. There's only worldly wisdom for people posing as, as proclaiming God's wisdom. It doesn't do anything for any of us. You see, and, and the size of the church isn't what matters here. There are huge, massive churches faithfully preaching God's word. There are small churches faithfully preaching God's word. There are medium-sized churches. It's not the size of the church. It's the faithfulness of the preacher. Fourthly and finally, not only the righteousness of self, the righteousness of God, the preacher's responsibility, but 18 through 21, the hearer's responsibility. It's not just the preacher's responsibility to faithfully deliver the word, but you've got a role in hearing as well, that there's something that has to be done on the side of the hearer. Verse 18 says this, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. You see, Israel is the nation ordained by God with the eight benefits that we talked about a number of times in Romans 9, 4 through 5. That they're closer to the gospel than anybody else. But, and one major advantage that they had was God's word. It's the same advantage that we have here today. God's word gives us this direct access to the gospel. But, and so because of that, because they, they were the ones whom God entrusted his word to, they can't claim ignorance. You can't say, well, I just, I just didn't know. You see, sometimes people try to claim ignorance as an excuse for doing what's wrong. That they, they doesn't make the action or inaction right. And usually when people claim ignorance, it's a total lie. It's like when you get pulled over by the cop and the first thing he says is, do you know what you did? And you're like, do I incriminate myself? Or like, the, you see the movie Liar, Liar, where he's like, 
and he spits out all these things that he did. He's like, I don't know how long you were following me, but here's all this stuff. And, he's, and then the cop says, do you have anything else? He's like, I've got unpaid parking tickets. And they pop out of his you know, uh, glove box. It's, it's, it's that thing. Do, how much do I incriminate myself? Because you, you know 90% of the time what you did. And it was probably speeding or you didn't use your blinker or stop correctly or something. But you know what it was. And even though you say, well, I, I just didn't, I didn't know what the speed limit was. That's not an excuse for doing what's wrong. You still deserve the ticket. And so if he gives you a ticket, the problem's not the cop, the problem's your speeding, right? That's, that's the way that this works. Ignorance doesn't get you out of not doing right or doing, uh, not doing wrong and doing right. It doesn't get you out of it. And so Paul says that Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 32 is being fulfilled there in verse 19. That God is going to use a foolish nation, Gentile people who aren't Jewish, I'm going to bring them into my family. I'm going to show my love to them. And I'm going, to, I'm going to do to them what should be happening to you, Israel. And that's the whole point of that is to provoke jealousy within them. Verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That Israel is this nation ordained by, excuse me, is uh, God's plan was always for the Gentiles to be saved. That was always his plan. It was never, it was never outside of his plan. Uh, the same way that Israel is saved. But Israel rejected God in Jesus and his plan for salvation. They arrogantly chose themselves and their way and their own self-righteousness. That's not just a Jewish thing, arrogantly choosing yourself. That's common in humanity. We're all that way. I, I don't want to have this. You ever had somebody give something to you and immediately you feel like you got to pay them back? They're like, hey, it's just a gift. Don't worry about it. No, no, no. I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta mow your lawn. I gotta buy you food. I gotta do, I gotta do something for you to pay you back. It's, it's like a, my neighbors. One of the things I've done ever since we moved into our house is, you know that strip of grass? Maybe you don't have it, but there's a strip of grass between the, uh, the uh, sidewalk and the road. Uh, I, I always just mow that on both sides for both of my neighbors because it's sort of connected. I always feel weird like stopping halfway through and like, that's my property line. You deal with your own grass. So I just mowed it. I've always done it. I, always, I do the same thing with the snow. I'll shovel all the way down to their driveway on each side. And it's funny because uh, they, all of the neighbors we've had, we've had multiple neighbors on each side, they all end up doing the same thing. And it's because of this thing within you that's like, I can't have somebody do something nice for me. I've got to pay them back. And that we treat God the same way. I can't, I can't have God just give, what, graciously give me salvation? I got to pay him back somehow. I got to do something somehow. And that's just not the way that things work. We tend to believe that God has chosen us because of our goodness instead of his grace. And that's just foolishness. God didn't choose you or preach his gospel to you or let you come to faith and salvation in him because you're so awesome. It's because he's so awesome. It's the only way. Warren Wiersbe says in his book, uh, his commentary, Be Right, Though Paul was, uh, uh, excuse me, through Paul, God was stretching out his arms of love to his disobedient people, yearning over them and asking them to return. God's favor to the Gentiles did not change his love for the Jews. You see, people hope in all sorts of things to make them right with God. Their own sincerity and devotion. Maybe my good's gonna outweigh my bad. Maybe God's just a fairy tale. And you know, when I die, I won't even have to worry about all this stuff. And that's what they hope to make themselves right with God. But God's word clearly declares to you that you can only be made right with him through the cross of Jesus and through his blood. So here's the question. What do you hope in? What's the basis of your relationship with God? If you haven't started a relationship with God, 
then, what's the, what, then that's, it's got to come down to faith in Jesus. But it's also the continuation of your relationship with God. God doesn't like you more because of the good stuff that you do. No, it's, it's actually the opposite of that. That his grace for me, his love for me is because of how great he is. And his love is so powerful, it will change who I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to dive into it, and to see what it is that you have to say. And we pray that, God, you would stir us up with genuine faith, not in, not in some cleverly devised words, but in your word. Lord, we know that you and you alone are the author of salvation. You're the, the giver of life. You're the one who graciously gives to us that which we need. And we pray, Lord, that you would stir up within us that faith. That, Lord, those who've never placed their faith in you, that today would be the day that they finally yield and they submit themselves to you. But, Lord, for those who need to recommit themselves or rededicate themselves to you, Lord, that today would be that day as well. Lord, help us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, that you might be glorified. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.